Really glad to be back with you this morning. Uh, I was I was able to get here last week. I think I was one of the only crazy people. Uh, there were a few other of you crazies who actually did come in uh, last week. God's grace and blessing be on you if you made that choice. Um, however, I'm really glad to be back with you. I wanted to to just talk for a, just a second about our wild game piece coming up. We have only a hundred tickets. That's about how many people we think we can feed in this room and share the gospel with effectively. Uh, and those tickets are going fast. They're $20 a piece. And uh, it's a great opportunity to, um, to have some fun, to eat some, by the way, free-range, wild, and organic meat, and no possums. Uh, <laughs> we draw the line. You've got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> And somewhere around possum is where that line starts. Uh, but you'll have an opportunity to maybe sample some squirrel gumbo or some venison chili or um, some of our guys are bass fishermen. I'm sure there'll be some fish uh, that'll show up. Uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a great time. We'll have some seminars going on uh, that are uh, informative and helpful if you're into the outdoors. And also we'll have some prizes and so forth. Uh, but primarily, the purpose of the event is to share the gospel with people and talk about how uh, God made the world, and he made it in such a way as to point us to him and to leave us a, a pathway to find our way to him that we might believe in him and be transformed and be changed into new people. And so we're going to do that primarily, but we're going to do some other fun things as well. And it'll be a great event. There's also a lot of opportunities to serve with that event. Uh, everything from being willing to make coffee and serve donuts uh, as folks come in um, to we need some folks who'd be willing to make some pies or some brownies. Uh, we need folks who'd be willing to serve uh, food when it's, when it's there. You know, we're going to have pie and ice cream for dessert, so we'll need folks who are willing to to uh, slice up and put on plates pieces of pie and a scoop of ice cream. Uh, we'll need um, folks to set up and tear down. Um, we need a couple of guys who'd be willing to run a grill or two. Uh, we need all kinds of things. So there's a lot of opportunity to serve, a lot of opportunity to be involved. Uh, there's sign-up sheets out in the hallway. I've got tickets on my person, uh, and I'll be happy to take your money. Uh, or checks made out to Chillicothe Bible Church. So uh, anyway, that'll be a great opportunity uh, for the gospel, a great opportunity to have some fun, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, we also, before, we, before I get started here with the message, I want to pray for Geraldine Schmidt. Uh, I understand she went in the, hosp went in the hospital at St. Francis, and uh, is still there. I'm going to go see her this afternoon. Uh, is she not still there? She's home now. Okay, good. Well, that'll save me a trip. Uh, wasn't feeling good enough to come today. Okay, we're going to pray for her then anyway, uh, that God would restore her health. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the great privilege I have of standing before your people and offering your word to them. Father, we know that it is through your word that we encounter you and by it we have life and are changed. 
as your Holy Spirit works in us. And Father, I, I pray also for the service today. I pray that, that in all things, that we would remember your great and awesome power. And that we would come here not because it is our duty, but because we love you. And Father, we pray for Geraldine Schmidt. Pray for her healing. Glad that she is on the mend. Father, Geraldine is a great lady. She has prayed for years, many people. Father, we thank you for her. We're blessed that she is part of our congregation. We pray you would restore her to full health soon. Well, uh, about 10 days ago, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Tour. No. Family events. Women can come, children can come, all are welcome. Everybody who comes has to have a ticket. The only, only stricture. Absolutely. Please. No. 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 In fact, uh, my wife will be there, I'm sure. Um, she, she has gotten into hunting this year, and it'll be, it, it's a, it'll be an exciting thing. So and anybody who wants to come can come. It's not limited. Okay? Yeah. All right. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, about 10 days ago, I was about as sick as I have ever been. Um, I had some kind of creeping crud, whatever is going around that is making people feel awful. And I felt better. You know, I'd had it about a day, and then I felt better, and then all of a sudden I felt worse, and uh, there was all kinds of vomiting and other stuff going on, and I was really close, honestly, to going to the hospital. Um, Karen told me, you have until noon to get better, and then we were going to the hospital. <laughs> and so right around noon, <laughs> I actually did recover um, by, God's, <laughs> by God's grace, more than my wife's ultimatum, I think. Uh, but serious enough, I was, I was really, really ill. Um, I was hurting worse than I have ever hurt with anything I've ever had, and um, it took about 40, 48 hours to get over, and, and I literally was praying, God, either heal me or kill me, and I don't care which. I, I really didn't. Uh, either take me home or, or help me feel better, and I don't, I don't really care which you choose at this point. Um, and when it was over, you know what I was tempted to do? go, well, glad that's over. I got better. Praise God. Okay, well, and, and you know, I think sometimes in our, you know, kind of modernistic, uh, rationalistic, post-enlightenment way of thinking, we tend to think that, well, you know, my immune system needed about 48 hours to kick in and uh, build those antibodies, and then they fight things back, and then, and then you feel better, right? As if that response has nothing to do with God and everything to do with your, you and your body. And so, you know what I did in, instead of just kind of moving on? I got down on my knees in my bedroom and I prayed, gave thanks to God that he had healed me. Because I had prayed for healing and I got it. And, and we might think, you know what? 
that's not a big deal. It's just one of those, you know, it's one of those forms of norovirus that's going around. and You know, people survive and so forth, but not everybody survives. People do die from this kind of thing. And God chose to heal me. And he answered me in the midst of my distress. And I bring this up not so that I can tell a story about myself and say, see how awesome my spirituality is? Because it's really not. But it's to illustrate one of the really common pitfalls that we, I think, all fall prone to, which is that we encounter a problem and we pray about it. And God answers, or maybe even delivers, in a way that we did not expect. And then when it's over, we go, huh, well, glad that's done. And we forget about God. Though we prayed, though we received an answer, though we're happy that things worked out in the way that they did, we forget about God's grace. And that's a problem because the whole point, believe it or not, of church, of worship, of the Bible, of being together in the body of Christ, Uh, The whole point of of our relationship with God in any aspect is to help us remember God's grace to us. Because those experiences of His grace are meant to make us not just God's worshiping children, but His loving worshiping children. Amen? As God demonstrates His kindness to us, it's meant to make that a reciprocal thing. That God is kind to us and we are gracious and loving people as a result. And we love God as a result. Because we remember the good things that he has done for us. And that we don't simply go through the motions of our relationship with God. But that we remember because we love him for all he has done for us. Instead of forgetting. Now, we're in Micah chapter 6 today, and God is going to remind his people of how he has loved them and going to talk to them about their response to him. And in this chapter, there's a lot of things for us to learn as well. So I want to show it to you. Um, We'll look at verses 1 to 5 to start with. Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Micah says, Here... What the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Now this is the beginning of Micah's third oracle. I think that Micah's oracles are recorded for us chronologically. And if that's true, then these, uh, then these words of chapter 6 and chapter 7 that we'll look at next week 
are written at the end of Micah's ministry. When good King Hezekiah is an old man, and he is therefore beginning as the kings of Judah did, they, in order to ensure a smooth transition with their son, they begin to share power with their son. When the current king becomes old, then they appoint their boy, the, the crown prince, as their dynastic successor, and they share power with him for a period until they die, so that there's a smooth transition of the kingdom, and no uh, rebellion and warfare has often happened in uh, monarchical societies like this. But Hezekiah's son, Hezekiah was one of Judah's best kings. His son is Manasseh. And Manasseh is one of the longest ruling as well as one of the worst kings that, has, that Judah ever had. Um, just goes to show you, by the way, that just because mom and dad are committed believers and follow the Lord with all their heart, and Hezekiah did, that that doesn't necessarily mean that my child is going to grow up to honor the Lord. Manasseh did not. In fact, uh, Hezekiah eliminated idol worship in all its forms. He trusted God, and he saw his miraculous de deliverance, both of the nation as well as him personally. You'll remember that Hezekiah was dying of some illness, and God sent his prophet and said, uh, you're, going to, you're going to live. And Hezekiah says, well, what sign will you give me that I'm going to live? <laughs> because I'm pretty sure I'm dying here. And he says, well, do you want to have the, the shadow of the sun advance 15 steps down, down, the, uh, down the steps of the palace or go back 15 steps? And he says, have it go back. And it does. Hezekiah sees God's deliverance. And Hezekiah recovers, and he lives another 15 years. Rain. But Manasseh, his boy, loved idolatry in all of its forms. He liked fortune tellers and mediums and necromancers. Um, he liked... Asherah poles. He liked Baal worship. He was into all of it. And Micah died before Manasseh becomes sole ruler and can give full vent to his wicked heart. But these things are already starting to happen. And Micah can see the handwriting on the wall. And so this last oracle is being delivered to a complacent people who worship God outwardly, but whose hearts are already beginning to turn away from Him. And chapter 6, in fact, is written in the form of a court case with God as the wounded and betrayed prosecutor and plaintiff and judge. And Judah is the bored, loveless, adulterous defendant. And it begins with the calling of witnesses. And when you go to court, you've got to have witnesses. And so, since the court case is between a nation and God, God calls the mountains as witnesses. When God formed His covenant with the people of Israel and Judah in the wilderness, He called on heaven and earth as witnesses. Now He calls the mountains. Do you know why He calls the mountains? Because 
It's on top of the mountains and on top of the hills that the people are now beginning once more to practice their idolatry. Because they would find a, a, a nice shady spot, big trees, and they would erect altars there on top of these hills. And they would engage in immorality as part of their worship. They would go to what were called the sacred groves. And an Asherah pole, by the way, is a fertility symbol carved in honor of this goddess. It's a nasty religion. And people are beginning to do this. And so God says, hey, let's call the mountains this witness and, and let the mountains tell what you are beginning to do. God is the maker of the mountains, and so he calls them as witnesses, not for the defense, but for the prosecution. The mountains have witnessed all of the evil that has been done on top of them, and so the people have no defense, as God argues the case. If you look at verses 3 through 5, be sure to catch the emotion behind these words. They are the cry of a broken and wounded heart. And they're God's words to his people. Where do you think your emotions come from, by the way? They're part of the image of God. You are made an emotional being because God is emotional. And he has emotion as he talks. He said, look at, it, look at what he says, verse 3. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And there are questions with no good answers. Because God has been gracious. God has been gracious beyond measure. He has blessed far out of proportion to their obedience, in fact. And they still find their relationship with God wearying and tiresome. He's saying, what did I ever do to you? except be gracious to you and compassionate toward you and show love to you and keep covenant with you. And what have you done? You've wandered off again. In verses 4 and 5, he reminds them of some of the ways he's shown his grace and love to them. And he begins back at Exodus. We're going to look at Exodus this year. We're going to spend most of the year looking at Exodus because it is the pivotal event in the history of Israel. It is something that is referred to Old and New Testament as the event by which a nation was made and a people are redeemed. And this is the place where God demonstrates his power. You remember the plagues? You know what God is doing with the plagues? He is whacking every Egyptian god that those people worship. And he is saying, I am God and there is no other, and there is no one like me who can even stand in my shadow. I have power. I am a mighty God. And Pharaoh thinks he's a God. Well, guess what? I'm going to rip you out of his hand. And when we go out, you're going to get rich from all of the stuff that they're going to give you just to get rid of you that will be your back wages for 430 years of slavery. And God delivers his people. He says, I have redeemed you. 
You are mine. I bought you. You were slaves, and I bought you, and you're mine. And he goes on. He says, and I, in addition to that, I gave you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. You remember Moses? What's Moses' role? He's the lawgiver. He's the guy who goes up on the mountain and, and intercedes between God and man and whose face glowed with the reflected glory of the presence of God. And he gives the law to his people and he seals the covenant and he consecrates the priests and he helps them build the tabernacle so that they can worship God and have their sins forgiven and have God dwell literally in the midst of his people. Something that never happened since the garden. God's presence is dwelling with people. And he gives Aaron as the high priest and all the priests after, after this and the whole history of Israel descend from Aaron. They're still around, by the way. Have you ever met a Jewish person whose name is Cohen or Cohen? C-O-H-E-N or C-O-H-N? That means priest. They're the descendants of Aaron. And he, they function as the mediator between God and man on an ongoing basis. And they were able to cover over sin on days like the Day of Atonement, where the, the sin of the nation was covered in the blood of the Lamb. And he says, I also gave you Miriam. You remember Miriam? She was a prophetess. And when they crossed through the Red Sea, Miriam leads the entire nation in worship. And they sing the song of how God has thrown horse and rider into the sea. And God says, I appointed those people to lead you. Because I love you. And in addition to that, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised? Balak uh, was king of Moab, and he saw this mass of people out in the desert, and they were going to march through his territory. They weren't supposed to take any of it. They were just going to march through on their way into the promised land. So what Balak does is he hires the prophet Balaam, the son of Beor. Remember that story from Sunday school? Balaam's on his donkey, and he's riding off. You know, he's... He's hired, he's the, he's the hired gun prophet. And he'll say whatever anybody wants him to say in exchange for money. And so God stops him on the way with an angel with a sword. And the donkey talks. Because the donkey, even though he's a dumb animal, he can see what the prophet with all his wisdom can't. He sees the angel and, and the donkey says, hey, why are you beating me? And he says, because you've run me around and you've crushed my foot against the wall. And he says, and all of a sudden, God opens the prophet's eyes and he sees the angel. And the angel says, good thing your donkey laid down or I'd have killed you in the road. And you go and you meet Balak and you tell him exactly what I tell you to speak. And when he does... Balak offers his sacrifices on a mountaintop and so forth. And then they, um, he says, all right, Balaam, I've offered my sacrifices. Tell me all the curses you want to lay on Israel. And he, come, he opens his mouth and blessing pours out. Like, oh, man. He says, uh, well, I tell you what, let's go over here to this hill. Maybe you can curse Israel from there. But they go and they offer their sacrifices. And all right, Balaam, give me your best shot. And a blessing comes out of his mouth. Okay, well, we'll do this one more time. He goes to a different spot, offers his sacrifices. All right, Balaam, give me your best curse on this nation of Israel. 
And, and Balaam steps up. And not only does he give blessing, but he says, your nation, Moab, will be wiped out. And from the people of Israel is going to come the deliverer who is going to rule and reign over the nation. And he prophesies not only about the greatness of Israel, but about the coming of Messiah. Proof that God can strike a straight lick with a crooked stick. Amen? And, and the reality of it is, is that God says, I demonstrate, you know, even when people want to curse you, I jam their stuff. And he says, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim is the last place in the wilderness where Israel camped before they crossed the Jordan River. And they go up to the Jordan River. Remember, this is a great scene. This is fantastic. The priests walk out with the Ark of the Covenant. They drop off into this, into this cliff, basically, on the edge of the Jordan, step into the flood water, and woof! The water rolls back like a curtain. And everybody walks across on dry land. And they tell all the leaders of the tribes, get yourself a rock from the middle of the Jordan. And so everybody gets their big boulder, you know. Because now it's a contest. They get their big boulder and they walk out and they big up, build a big rock pile at the first place they camp, which is Gilgal. And, they, and when people see these rocks that are worn smooth from the river, they go, they're, they're to ask, what's with the rocks? It says, this is the place where we camped when God took us across the river on dry ground. And those rocks are from the middle of the, of the river. Now, the Jordan River doesn't look very impressive today because... Jordan, Syria, Israel uh, have all sucked out about a billion gallons a year out of the river. So it doesn't look quite as awesome today, but at flood stage then, it was this massive thing. And they walked across. God says, remember all this stuff? Remember how great and awesome my grace and my love has been to you? And you forgot. Well, the people respond. Verse 6 and verse 7. Let's look at those. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you. O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? People of, of Judah, their relationship with God is like that old B.B. King song. The thrill is gone. Okay? I don't know if you've ever heard it. Great song. The thrill is gone. Oh, yeah, it's great. Okay. The thrill is gone away. Oh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic, right? And, and they have just forgot everything that God has done for them. They might remember, uh, you know, just mentally, but in their hearts, they have no desire to be in relationship with God. And so they're like, what they're like is like the, they're like the, the rich guy whose wife is going crazy because it's evident to her that he doesn't love her anymore. And so he comes back with, all right, baby, what's going to take? 
you need a new Lexus. I mean, you know, another house at the beach. I mean, I don't know. You want me to quit my job? What do you want? What's going to make you happy? And that's what Israel does. They come up with ever more extravagant sacrifices, even to the point of saying, well, how about this? How about I give you my firstborn? Now that is revealing a couple of levels. Number one, they actually are so far away in their relationship with God, they think that's a good idea. And number two, it shows how far into idolatry they've actually gotten. Because in idol worship, this is something you did do. They would build build these big bronze altars, the statue of this god, Molech. And he had his arms outstretched, and they would build fires in the inside. And then they would roll the baby down the arms of this idol into the fire in the center of the thing. They think that God is like that. And God comes back with verse 8. This is Micah speaking. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And he gives them three things. He says to do justice. To do justice. Now, these are the laws. This is a reference in general to the laws that have to do with how you should treat people. These are the laws that tell you what not to do. Uh, they have, um, they're, they're the laws that have to do with uh, how to deal with the most vulnerable members of society. And the laws that are to ensure that the weak are protected. This is, in other words, this is the bare minimum of being a human, that you don't You don't lie and cheat and steal and take advantage of and rob and murder people. That's what it means to do justice. To ensure that the poor, when they go to court, get a fair shake. To do justice is to do those kinds of things. To take care of the widow and the orphan. To do justice. And he says also to love kindness. Now this is a... The word kindness there is an untranslatable Hebrew word. It is the word chesed. And it, it's, it's hard to bring all the nuances into English, but it's usually a term that is, describes God's relationship with us. It's a word for covenant loyalty. It's a lot of times translated steadfast love. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know, this kind of thing. His mercy never comes to an end. That's hesed. It's, in other words, it's not just what you should not do to people. It's what you should do in your relationship with other people. That you're to be kind and gentle. That you're to demonstrate steadfast love in the same way that God does toward us. We're to demonstrate it toward other people. We're to show steadfast love, to show the fact that we are in covenant with God 
by the way that we treat other people. It's not just what we don't do, it's what we do toward others that matters. God's people don't just refuse to rob widows and orphans, we also provide for their needs. Amen? The actions you take reveal your heart far more than the actions you don't take. No one is all that impressed when you say to us, you know, hey, I had an opportunity to steal something yesterday and I didn't steal it. Well, good for you. <laughs> you know, I hope that's not too much of a struggle, right? Um, uh, it's not just the actions you don't take, it's the actions that you do take that reveal your heart. He says, so we not only do justice, we also love kindness. Or your Bible may read, love mercy. You extend grace. be another good word. Render hesed. You extend grace to other people. You give people what they do not deserve. To do justice is to just to give people what they deserve and to treat people fairly. But to love mercy is to treat people with grace, to give them what they do not deserve, have not earned. How God treats us. And the last of the requirements there is in verse 8 is the broadest. It's to walk humbly with your God. It's the attitude of putting what the Lord desires above what we desire because we love Him and He is worth it. Because bottom line the heart matters more than outward forms of worship. Amen? God's people in Israel and God's people today are often really good at the outward forms of worship. They show up. They go through the religious ritual. They participate in the reading of the Scripture. They make their sacrifices. God wants the heart of the person more than outward compliance with religious requirements. He says to walk humbly with me. Because here's the reality. Let me give you a math equation. Some of you are math into math. Let me give you one, okay? Ritual minus a real and loving relationship with God equals religion. Just religion. It's just something that you do on Sunday or if you were a Jew on Saturday. Unless it's real and unless it comes from your heart and God rejects that. He will only accept all of us. He demands everything, including our heart, be devoted to Him. And because these people are guilty of violating God's covenant, because their hearts are not turned toward Him, in verses 9 to 16, God pronounces His sentence. And this is what He says. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? 
Shall I acquit a man with wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, and your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sin. You shall eat, but you shall not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but you shall not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you've walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you will bear the scorn of my people. God says here in these verses, look, my patience is exhausted. Because I won't overlook your rebellion anymore. Merchants are treating their customers with dishonest scales and measures. People are paying a pound and getting three quarters. Buying a bushel and getting three and a half pecks instead of four. When they go to pay, the merchant puts heavier weights on the scale so that more of his customer's silver goes to the purchase. Everybody lies to everybody else. Doing justice and loving kindness are as absent as love for God. And therefore, God's judgment is going to fall. And he says, all your work is going to blow away. You'll eat and not have enough. You'll plant but not harvest. You'll make wine and oil, but you'll never get to enjoy it because the invader is coming and is going to take it for himself. Why? is because you are following in the ways of Omri. That's a wicked king of the northern kingdom. His descendant was Ahab. You remember Ahab and Jezebel? Wicked, wicked people who loved idolatry and loved evil. And God says, fine, if you want to walk in their ways rather than mine, then you will get to share their destiny, which is desolation, scorn, and derision from your enemies, and they will all be yours to save them. You want to walk in ways other than mine, you will get to experience the consequences of that. And this passage ends with hard words for a hardened people. Because what God is doing is He is taking His word and He is hammering, trying to break through into something soft inside them. He is not announcing his judgment just because he wants to be mean. C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he screams at us in our pain. And that pain is the tool that God uses to rouse a deaf word. And God is going to inflict pain on his people in hope that some of them will wake up and turn to him. And his relationship with them might be restored. So, I got, I'm tight on time again, I know. But let me give you a few things to, re- to reflect on out of this passage. Number one, remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. Remember. God's grace. Because the major purpose of all of our worship 
the reason we read our Bible, the reason that, you know, if you want to get into reading your Bible through in a year, I would encourage you to do that. But here's the reason why you do it. So that you remember God's grace. That you remember how much He loves you, how much He has done for you, how He has saved you and bought you and made you His own and made you His child and brought you into His family. Through the sacrifice of the Messiah he promised long ago and then delivered. That's why you do it. You know why church is a weekly thing? You know why we take communion every month? You know why we sing the songs of the faith? Why we baptize people? Why we do ministry together? One simple reason. To help us because we are prone to forget. To remember God's grace. Us. Because He loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love and He holds us with the everlasting arms. Amen? And it is these things are meant to move our hearts toward Him that we might remember and reciprocate His love for us. Remember God's grace to you. Second thing, what God really wants is our heart. You know, if you offer a sacrifice of your money, that's a good thing. If you sacrifice your time and the gifts that God has given you and you offer them back to Him, that's a good thing. But if you devote your entire life to doing these things and God never has your heart, it is worth What God really wants is not your sacrifice, but your heart. God really wants is your heart. Do you obey God? Yes, absolutely. Do I do so out of His in obedience to His command? Yes. Um, do I go to church? Yes. Do I do I give sacrificially? Yes. Do I use my spiritual gifts? Absolutely. Do I share the gospel with people? Absolutely. But the reason matters. Christianity is the worst hobby in the world. If you, what you want is a hobby to do on the weekend, buy a boat. Kid you not. Christianity is not a hobby. It's a life devoted to loving and serving and following because we love the living God. Last thing, blessing. If I'm not living in right relationship with God, this passage would tell me that I will never be satisfied. No matter what I have, it will never be enough. And it will all turn to dust. If you want to experience God's blessing, know this. You can scratch, claw, and cheat and rob, and murder, and steal all you want to obtain all you want, and if you get it, it will not be enough. Because as Augustine said, restless is our heart until it finds its rest. What we really want is God. If you want His blessing, you need to want Him first. Let's pray, and we'll take communion.
God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that as I look at this passage, it's really easy to exhort other people to stand up and thunder about what God thinks and what God wants. Father, my own heart is just like everybody else's, prone to wandering, prone to forgetting, prone to leaving the God I love. Father, I pray that you would renew our hearts. I pray that you would renew our passion to know you and to desire to be in relationship with you, not because we feel like we must, but because we love you and help ourselves. Father, give us a deep desire to love you and obey you know you because you are worthy. You are worthy of it all. In fact, the only the only being, the only thing in all the universe which is worthy of sacrifice and Father, we pray that you feel that once more. Well,